Welcome to Gov Actually, the podcast about how government works. How it actually works. I'm Dan Tangerlini, Chief Financial Officer of the Emerson Collective, and this is the FedScoop Radio Network. And I'm Danny Werfel from the Boston Consulting Group. We launched this pod to try to get beyond the personalities and the politics. Right. We want to talk about how things actually get done in the government, the people who do it, and the challenges they face. So let's talk. Danny, we're back for GovActually episode, I think it's number 46, which means we're closing in on a, on a half century of GovActually or, or something like that. That's exciting. Well, ironic um, because I'm closing in on a half century of life. Oh, right. You know, and, and the Roman numeral for, for 50 is L. And I don't know if you remember with the Super Bowl, when it hit Super Bowl 50, they decided they weren't going to use the L because, you know, it has some other symbolism, but, um, but our guest, I feel good. I'm feeling good. Yeah. But our guest today doesn't have to worry about uh, getting an L uh, because we're at, uh, we're only at episode 46 and we're joined today by a good friend and someone I I deeply admire, um, a professor of entrepreneurship at the, at HBS, the Harvard business school, Mitchell Weiss. Now, uh, Mitchell, before joining the faculty of Harvard, was the former chief of staff to a great mayor of Boston, Tom Menino. Um, he co-founded when he was there the mayor's office of new urban mechanics. Um, I didn't know that the fleet maintenance operation had an off. No, I'm kidding around. So it's a it's a it, he'll explain what what new urban mechanics is all about, because it's really about. It's really about government entrepreneurship. And he's the author of an, a really exciting book, a, a deep um, gov actually kind of nerd out called We the Possibility, Harnessing Public Entrepreneurship to Solve Our Most Urgent Problems. And so I'd like to welcome Mitchell Weiss to uh, gov actually today. Welcome, Mitchell. Or Thank Professor you. Weiss, excuse me. <laughs> Mitch is fine. Uh, it's great to see you both. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So, um, Danny, I, I don't know. Um, uh, uh, how much you know about the mayor's office, New Urban Mechanics, but um, uh, Mayor Menino was was just famous among mayoral circles for his deep commitment to um, operational aspects of of local government. We've talked about that government, at least in my view, is the is is really the the hardest uh, level of government to get right. It's the most accountable level of government. You know, the joke is a mayor runs for for office every day because someone's garbage is being picked up or, or not. Um, and so uh, the Office of New Urban Mechanics was really a, a, an exercise in data-driven uh, entrepreneurial risk-taking uh, government structure, the kind of which I, uh, the type of which I think in, in Mitch's book um, kind of suggests that if we were to really unlock those opportunities across government, we could, we could really transform the way government delivers services. Yeah, I guess, Mitch, the first, or, uh, the first question I would have is, um, is how do you think about um, entrepreneurship in the public service and in government uh, when, when there's so much culture around risk and risk aversion? And how, how do you think about resolving that tension? Well, it's definitely the first thing that comes up, risk aversion. Whenever I talk about uh, public entrepreneurship or as I describe it in the book, possibility government and the doing of new and novel things that only might work because they're new, um, 
in other words, it only might possibly work because they're new. Risk aversion is absolutely the first thing people mention. There's a couple counter arguments to all that, Danny, which I try to address right up front. First of all, government actually is as an entity is not, should not be risk averse. Nobel prizes have been awarded in part on, the, on this basis. Uh, Ken Arrow <clears throat> points out government should be risk neutral by virtue of its size, its scale, its taxing authority. It's most positioned to actually absorb and spread risk. So first of all, and my colleague, David Moss at Harvard Business School has written in length on this. So government itself should not be, is not risk averse. Okay, point number two, the people in government are risk averse. We've all experienced, you both in government, me in government experienced that, we see it every day. Uh, we have to acknowledge the main reason they're risk averse, the main reason they're risk averse, Danny, is because they're people. <laughs> people don't like risk, right? We're animals. And so I try not to pathologize, you know, government risk aversion as being so different than risk aversion in all other sectors. And the question then becomes, if we have entrepreneurship in other places and there are humans in those places, we should mostly be able to have entrepreneurship in government too. Let me push on that though. I'm, I was watching a hearing the other day, um, a house hearing. There were government officials uh, dealing with the COVID response, testifying and getting yelled at, you know? And, you know, this is like a once in a century unicorn black swan event. Um, and, you know, and we're, you know, the government is, is trying different things and, and it just didn't feel constructive. It felt overly political. So it's, I think it's people are risk averse, but I think, you know, culturally this notion that one mistake um, means that you need to be dragged out and yelled at publicly kind of reinforces that risk aversion. Well, I agree with that. I mean, that's part of the reason I wrote the book is to try to change, upend this culture and point out that historically government was an inventor. Like every apparatus of government we have was invented at one point. George Washington says in his first inaugural address, this is an experiment. The first four of our, I mean, four of our first five presidents say this is an experiment. So I couldn't agree with you more that we've gotten away from it, Danny, and it's gotten too hard. And especially in moments like this, you would think people would be more um, forgiving about uh, trying a new thing. So yes, the culture needs to change uh, if we're gonna be able to do more possibility government, more public entrepreneurship. I, I agree with you there. Um, and it can, I mean, we could, we could invite uh, members of Congress and hearings to drive a different kind of accountability. If you were inept, if you were incompetent, if you were corrupt, if you were lazy and you made a mistake, sure, you should get skewered. But if you tried something new and you didn't waste too much time, you didn't waste too much taxpayer money um, and you learned from it and the thing you tried didn't work, well, okay, go on to the next thing. So we need to change the culture. We also need to change the kind of accountability uh, that we have in government. Yeah. Don't, don't you think that that's part of the um, uh, that's part of the problem, though, is that people are so afraid of being skewered for incompetence or, or perceived corruption or or laziness um, that that they they spend a lot of time trying to get to the one thousand percent perfect solution, which we know then gets overwhelmed by exogenous factors like technology or, or environment or, or resourcing. And so while they're busy trying to get it a thousand percent perfect, they're missing many, many, many opportunities to get it even 1% better. Right. And so then the status quo becomes much more dangerous than the new thing that we're thinking about trying. And I think that defines so many of the issues that face us, climate, infrastructure, schooling, public health. 
it turned out that doing nothing, because Dan, to your point, we were so worried about doing anything, but doing nothing is more dangerous than doing something. And so when people say to me, oh my gosh, doing the new thing is, is too risky. I, I try to say, well, wait, let's talk about not doing the new thing. Kids not being educated, people not being fed, people not being prepared for new, the new wave of new jobs. All that seems incredibly risky to me. And, and this comes all the way back to Danny's point, which is, yeah, I mean, the culture needs to change. And part of changing the culture is to say the status quo is more, is, is very oftentimes the dangerous choice. And so is, by the way, Dan, to your point, you know, the plotting, uh, you know, will deliver a solution in 10 years. That's also a dangerous, that's also a dangerous approach. I, I think, yeah. And I, I just gently change the framing of, of your response and say, it's that it's not that people are afraid of doing anything. They're afraid of doing anything wrong. And because they're afraid of doing anything wrong, it makes it harder for them to do anything. We have to dig into this fear, though. It's so interesting. I was, I was, I was having a conversation yesterday with, um, with, with, with somebody actually in the UK who spends a lot of time uh, instructing uh, military leaders, and we were talk. He was talking about this exact same point about their aversion to doing things or or doing new things, and he said it's it's so odd. These are people who are willing to actually risk their life. They're willing to die in the public service, but they're not willing to try something new. Like, how do you explain? How do you explain that? Yeah. Well, and I, I remember sitting around a table with people who are really pushing back on bringing some level of, of customer-facing technology to the fore. And um, when the meeting was not interesting or, or they were distracted, it was generally by this handheld apparatus that was only a few years old that somehow ha they had incorporated into their personal life putting bank data and all their contacts and having all their communication, but that was okay for them personally. They were willing to do that because it made their life directly better, but they were deeply, deeply concerned about quote unquote risk associated with, with making a change to a program that would have made many, many other people's lives better. Yeah. yeah. But it feels like there are parts of government where historically it's okay to have a research and development or an R&D wing to do new things like NASA, defense, parts of energy. Um, but but even, even in there, Danny, like, like SpaceX had to fight to, to innovate in NASA. And I know that there are certain NIH programs that actually in the application, they say they don't want to do anything too you know, off the, off the charts that in, yeah. at some level, as we become bigger and richer and, and maybe more um, politically binary, we've been, we've become less willing to take those risks as a, as a federal government. Yeah. I'm, I'm just suggesting like there may be, I'm trying to figure out where are there areas where the stars have aligned for this type of entrepreneurship or risk-taking. And you're right, it's certainly not perfect, but local I think, well, but in the federal space, and we should talk about local government in a moment, but I'm thinking there are some places where there is R&D and research. And then there's a couple of like life or death moments or like, like emergencies. Like I remember, for example, you know, deep water horizon oil spill, like let's try a bunch of different things to plug that hole. And like, there wasn't necessarily like, you know, people outraged if something didn't work, you know, we were just trying things or even like with the recent vaccine, like no one's freaking out that, that the government gave money to a pharmaceutical company that didn't get over the line. 
because Johnson and Johnson or, or, or Pfizer or Moderna did get over the line and it was okay to try different things to get us there. So Mitchell, I'm just wondering, is there any, is there any preconditions that we can learn from for where the government does feel comfortable taking risks? Well, there are pockets of this at every level of government all around the world. Um, and so it's not just a local thing. It's not just a U.S. thing. In fact, in, in many instances, we're well behind in terms of how inventive we are. Uh, in the U.S., you know, you mentioned, you know, defense. I mean, I, I write in the book about uh, James Gertz, who was running AT&L at, at, at SOCOM and then um, created this thing called Softworks to kind of be the, uh, you know, sort of the skunkworks for, for SOCOM. And you have to ask yourself, well, why, why do they need some new outpost to get new ideas when they have, you know, a $600 billion plus DOD budget, when they've got DARPA? Um, you know, but the answer is he felt they had become too, uh, too wedded to the past, not open enough to the future. And we needed to open ourselves up to, to more new ideas. Why is every Secretary of Defense, I, I, almost, uh, for the last you know, two decades, uh, you know, hiked out to Silicon Valley and said, we need to become more inventive, help us do that. Why is it the DIU and AFWorks and SoftWorks and InQtel? Because we're constantly trying to become more inventive. Yes, the DOD, um, but you can find um, entities like a SoftWorks at almost every, almost every actually kind of agency and almost every level of government and all around the world. I mean. Uh, uh, GovTech Singapore, which was their uh, digital transformation agency, which left in action post-COVID. Uh, the efforts are on the India stack in, in India, uh, the GDS in the UK. I mean, so uh, there, are, there are pockets of this. The question is, uh, how, how can it spread? In terms of preconditions, I think we need leaders, Danny, who will um, be very clear-eyed at, at, at acknowledging that the status quo is a dangerous choice and provide the kind of impetus and cover for trying new things that might only possibly work. And, and a second precondition is we need talent, talent inside government that can be invited out to be more inventive and knows the skills and toolkits of, of entrepreneurship and of you know, hypothesis-driven entrepreneurship, lean startup, whatever you wanna call it, of trying new things without taking on too much risk. And uh, talent that comes in from the outside and helps. And a third precondition where I don't know if it's so much a precondition, but it's certainly a condition for scaling is, is and this will be close to, um, I know close to Dan, Dan's heart, but like procurement, we need to be able to budget and buy for possibility. And the agencies that can learn to budget and buy for possibility uh, will, will be better off. That's a precondition for scaling this work. Mitch, aren't you describing a little bit though, a lot a bit of the innovator's dilemma. And so this isn't simply a an issue of government. This is simply an issue of big organizations, you know, Kodak and, and digital film and uh, General Motors and electric cars. And, you know, the, the, you know, the, the business narratives are rife with large, complex, successful organizations having a very, very, very hard time responding to an evolving marketplace technology and, and uh, uh, you know, comp competition. Yes, I think it's very analogous, right? Our country started, we started as inventors, right? Washington calls an experiment, but we're not quite young anymore. You know, maybe Reagan said, you know, we're forever young, but we're maybe just youngish. <laughs> so um, it gets hard, just like all or old organizations, it gets hard to be inventive, but some have succeeded. Some have succeeded at, at, succeeded at staying inventive and we need to go and, and, and do the same thing. And it's a matter of, you know, I sort of say in the book, figuring out three steps that we've maybe lost. And one is, is new ideas. We need government that can imagine. Two is, is trying things. We need government that, that actually knows how to try new things. And three is ultimately, we need to be able to scale those things that work. And if we can do those three things well, 
I think we can we can solve a lot of the problems that face us, and um, and we can we can uh, do them. By the way, Danny, uh, in the wake of these crises, you say sometimes it takes an emergency like a deep water horizon or a COVID to sort of leap to action. What we have to figure out is how to do this when we're not in crisis. Yeah. I, I hate the line, you know, a crisis is a terrible thing to waste. That seems like a very bad strategy uh, because it sort of implies we should wait around until they happen. We need to become more inventive in these interregnums. And uh, I hope possibility government offers us a, a method for doing that. In the book, you say, we get the government, we invent. What do you mean by that? Well, if we're gonna have possibility government, we can't just leave it up to uh, the public officials, you know, appointed and elected officials. Although they're going to have to be uh, obviously uh, skilled at this, maybe braver, although honestly, if they're skilled at possibility government, they don't even have to be that brave. So we're gonna need the elected leaders. But the reason I say we the possibility, we get the government we invent, is it's also gonna be up to the public. The public is gonna to have to tolerate, encourage, even co-participate if we're really gonna solve the public problems that face us. I think public officials, when they promise us success in all new programs, uh, they're, they're lying to us. But the public is lying to ourselves when we basically say we believe them. Or Danny, to your earlier point, when then as soon as it doesn't work, when we start finger pointing, um, the public has to understand that a new and novel things, only some of those things will work. Uh, your job as a member of the public is to encourage that trying and, and to provide accountability. Again, inept, corrupt, lazy, uh, you know, uh, vote out your elected officials. But if your elected officials are, are willing to experiment and can do it without wasting too much time and energy, then, then let them try again and again and harness that learning. So we all together, we all together have to move towards possibility. We, it won't be up to public leaders alone. One thing that, that strikes me as you're talking is just thinking about the way government is perceived by the public. And I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on the way in which our education systems teach government and you know, have we lost, do, do we have to, like the chain is as strong as its weakest link. And if we don't have good civics education where people understand the, the impact that government has on their lives and the art of the possible for what a higher performing government can do, then it's hard to put all these pieces together towards this culture change and this public engagement game. Yeah. So I just, I just wonder if you have any thoughts on the state of civics education and whether that's something that needs to be a part of the solution here. Well, I do. I mean, if we acquire all these skills of the possibility government of public entrepreneurship, we, give it, we begin to ask ourselves, you know, to what should we apply them towards? And Danny, I believe that right now um, there's no uh, higher calling, uh, no better place to apply the skills of public entrepreneurship to than fixing our democracy. And people might say, oh no, that's the, that's the last place to look. It's so fragile, don't try new things there. And I think mainly precisely the opposite, which is it's so fragile, it's desperate for, for innovation, for reinvention, and we should try things there. I write in the book about an organization called Protect Democracy. Uh, and you know, full disclosure, Justin Florence, who co-founded that is a friend of mine. But um, they, among the many things they're doing to try to protect our democracy, they built an, a thing called Vote Shield to use sort of ML, to detect uh, aberrations in, in voter, you know, voter registration lists. So maybe there's been a purge or a hack. I mean, that's an amazing episode of public entrepreneurship. On the civics education front, my colleague David Moss started an organization, and again, disclosure, I'm on the board of it, um, to, to teach democracy by the case method, by the HBS case method in high schools uh, around, yeah. around the country. And um, I do believe that if we're gonna rescue our, our country from the 
from the precipice it's at, that having a new generation of people who uh, put democracy first and partisanship, partisanship and other things second is gonna be key. And so entrepreneurship, whether it's to bring civics into the classroom in new ways, whether it's to protect voter registration lists in new ways, whether it's to uh, secure people's right to vote at all in new ways, I think it's gonna be absolutely essential. And um, if I could say just one other, one other thing about enticing a younger generation to have faith in this country and devote their life to public service. I think if, we, if, if they know they can combine their skills in entrepreneurship, their interest in technology um, and, uh, and the public service into one career, well, they'll choose this, they'll choose this. And uh, for me, it was a book in the 90s, I'm sure you both remember Reinventing Government, yep. uh, which said to me, oh my gosh, I can take my interests in, in government and in entrepreneurship and do something jointly. If, if my book can do, and these other books that are out now on similar subjects can catalyze a new generation to want to combine those things and serve, then I think we do have a, a, you know, more than a hope of, uh, of strengthening our, uh, our democracy and our republic. Yeah. So we're wrapping up. Let me ask you a, a personal question. So you teach at the Harvard Business School. But if I didn't know that, and I just listened to this interview, I think you taught at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government. You know, so what, what, what path leads you to, uh, to teach business versus public policy based on this great passion that you have? Well, I uh, went to Harvard Business School. I always thought of it as a leadership school. I believe still to this day, what we need more of in public life is, is better leadership. Uh, more directly, uh, Dan said, I was, I was chief of staff to Tom Menino. Uh, including in, in the wake of the Boston Marathon uh, bombing, uh, when we started up uh, One Fund Boston, and uh, as a new and novel way to basically generate, um, collect and channel money from, from the generous people around the world to the survivors. We just celebrated the eighth, not celebrated, but had the eighth anniversary of that horrible attack. And Mayor Menino was retiring, and I was thinking about what I wanted to do next. And I was thinking about all that invention in that moment, um, and all that invention in new mechanics and otherwise, and also why it was hard and I was thinking in part it was hard, in part, uh, why invention and government stuff is hard. And we, we've talked about a lot of those reasons was we were training people wrong. And that basically at places like the Kennedy School and other policy schools, we were taking people who wanted to be interested in government and we were teaching them to be analysts and strategists, but not inventors and builders. And to your question, we were training people at business schools or Harvard Business School, which I love so much, who were inclined to invent and build. We weren't training them or telling them you could invent and build in government or for it. And I thought there was this huge opportunity to invite those who were inclined to be entrepreneurs, to go into the public sector and do it, or start gov tech companies or invest in gov tech companies and do it. And so that's why I came to Harvard Business School. Um, entrepreneurship, I think, is, uh, is not an umbrella that should be owned only by startup companies. Uh, it, it really uh, is about uh, seeing problems in the world, uh, turning them into opportunities. That's a public and private um, uh, mandate and uh, and I'm happy to be bringing a public message to to, to students who, who want to invent and build and, and tell them they can do that and, and serve their neighbors. Uh, Prof Professor Weiss, I, I just uh, I appreciate your passion and your and your commitment to this uh, this subject and to improving government in in this way. As we were as we were talking a little bit before this all started, uh, there's a bit of a moment now happening for for this notion of of government entrepreneurship and. And maybe that's because um, as a populace, we realize we get the government we invent, which is a, a great kind of evolution of Jefferson's uh, uh, maxim that you get the government you elect, which was an evolution of apparently a philosopher, a French philosopher by the name of Joseph de Mestre's 
um, uh, uh, statement that you get the government you deserve. And, and so in a sense, we see this kind of um, this notion that, you know, you only get as good as you, as you give. And then, you know, this American uh, experiment of democracy that allows you then to maybe change it. And what you're saying is that we got to keep that, we got to keep that engine going and we need to recognize that this is um, something that we can evolve, we can change, we can apply technology to in all our learning and invent something new that meets the needs of the, of the current time. I hope it will. Thanks so much for being on. The book is We the Possibility, Harnessing Public Entrepreneurship to Solve Our Urgent Problems. Thank you so much, Mitch. Um, we'll see you soon. Thanks, gentlemen. GovActually is brought to you by the good folks at the FedScoop Radio Network. Be sure to check out what is happening on the forefront of government technology innovation at FedScoop, as well as the most important issues facing cybersecurity professionals at CyberScoop. GovActually is also supported by the Boston Consulting Group and the Center for Public Impact. All right, Danny, we're back. Um, needed to take a little bit of a rest because uh, uh, Professor Mitch, um, boy, wow. got, got the brain all fired up. I need to take a walk around the block first before we sit down here and try to process. I am, I'm fired up. I mean, I, I think he's on to something, his passion. I actually like, lo- like I kind of all, like a little bit regretted my Kennedy School Business School question. It was like, oh, that's kind of a petty question. But then the way he answered it, I was like, oh my goodness, this is like, he's, he's totally on it. Like, how should we think about um, getting people motivated to innovate in government? And, um, and so on the one hand, the Kennedy School could be, could be teaching more innovation than in analytics. And on the other hand, the business school could be getting people excited about taking their talents to .gov, not .com. It's, it's, it, was yeah. a great, it was a great answer. Yeah, no, I, 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 I think that's right. I mean, I have both a, a master's in public policy and a master's in business. And, and I don't know if the world needs people to have both of those degrees now. They just need the degree programs to offer, you know, a, a more of a, a, you know, more of a spread of, of what each of them offer. And it sounds like that's what they're doing. Uh, I know both at the Kennedy School and at, um, and at uh, HBS and, and, and at the schools I attended to, too, um, the business school in particular, I remember they, they just thought the government was a bit of a, a laugh line, a bit of a punchline. And, and I think the, um, the financial crisis of 2008, 2009 woke everyone up to the fact that these things don't operate in, in, in ex, you, know, uh, you know, separate from each other. The other thing is this idea of like some of the challenges of a big government, you know, innovation and risk taking these exist in the private sector as well. Yeah. Um, so, you know, but, you know, there's this, there's another book that just came out, Power to the Public, The Promise of Public Interest Technology by Hannah Shank and Tara Dawson McGuinness. That's another version of kind of a tech focused, like internal entrepreneurship. Um, Beth Novak apparently has a new book coming out. Um, Fareed Zakaria did an article um, just today, and I think Ezra Klein last week on government officials and risk. I, I you know, there's this kind of. It, it feels like there's a um, a moment here, and I think um, I think Mitch has really, you know, he was the first one out of the gate, and and I think his product is a is a really is a really worthwhile read, a really interesting and powerful points he's making. 
Yeah, and I, I for some reason, I'm recently obsessed with, uh, with the education angle and like, what do we, I guess that podcast um, that mm. uh, I mentioned to you offline, there's a, as seen on radio, did a, um, uh, a season on democracy. And uh, I guess it was episode 10 was called Schooled for Democracy. And they talked about, you know, the state of civics education in the, in the U.S. and, um, and, and made some really amazing points about about how to breathe life into civics education so i got a question for you dan okay when you when you were growing up (laughs) Uh yeah what what was your image of government like what did you think about did you have a positive impact uh you know impression of it zero impression negative like like how did you think about government as a kid um, it's a really interesting question because, you know, I, I grew up in um, central Massachusetts and, and politics and government is a, it's kind of like a weekend sport out there. You know, everyone seems to be involved in, you know, the town meeting. And my mom was, a, was like a freelance reporter for the local newspaper and would cover town meetings. So I, I I didn't think of it as um, negative or, or even uniformly positive. I, you know, I, I thought of it as a, you know, as an element of, you know, our environment and our context. I, I thought it was cool and, and interesting and participatory. I, I really wanted to be a business person, but I didn't, I didn't think that that was a, in opposition to government. I, you know, I don't know if I was in that world of this, binary notion of government versus non-government. How about you? Yeah, and I asked the question because I'm just wondering if today, you know, people growing up are, that there's any material difference in how they think about government. Because for me, I I thought about government, it, it, it was exciting. Like it, it, it seemed to be a, a like a, you know, and it seemed to have a lot of heroes in my mind. Um, mm. And it seems to me today there are more villains um, in the national conscious. And I don't remember that growing up. It's like I just see it now. It feels like there's a lot of villainization going on that I don't remember growing up. I just remember you might disagree with the, you know, Jimmy Carter versus Ronald Reagan, but it wasn't like, from my mind as a fourth, fifth, sixth grader, it was not that either were vilified. It was just, you know, more different directions than we're taking the country versus like when we started this podcast, it was Trump versus Clinton. And they, we started this podcast during that election. And I was like, it was villainizing Trump and villainizing Clinton. And, sure. and you know, I think about all the kids that, are, that grew up or growing up during this, this age. And I worry. Um, about about yeah, how it might although, impact their impression of government. I I actually um you know I also think that to some extent the the relative neutrality of my view from when I grew up was also reflective of the privilege I had you know um you know where I grew up what context I grew up in it was a privileged position um. It, we weren't particularly wealthy or, you know, but it was there, you know, in understanding and gaining and appreciating a deeper understanding of, uh, of the challenges that many people face within the context of, of our government, our society, 
I understand that maybe I had a little extra room to be neutral or even positive because of, of, of the privilege that was afforded me. Um, so in that sense, though, I think that there is probably uh, very few times in the history of the government of this country that are as exciting and interesting now as now to grow up in the level of uh, ability to interact and participate the level of dialogue, the issues we are grappling with, as hard as they are, we're having conversations that were just not okay. You know, you just weren't allowed to have them before. And I think in that sense, I'm gonna be positive and optimistic. I'm gonna to try to do that here and say, as troubling as these times are, it is from those troubling times that, that progress is made. Um, and, 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 you know, if we're going to invent something new, we got to do it. We've got to have a context for inventing it. And maybe we're not comfortable anymore. Yeah. That makes us, that pushes us. And it's probably naive to think that people didn't villainize Reagan and Carter. They, they, they oh, totally did. Yeah. Totally yeah. did. <laughs> and and, and it listened to, um, Listen to In Plain Sight, the podcast about Lady Bird Johnson. Yeah. And oh, you know, you want you want really and you know, time of villainization and challenge and and threat and 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 bodily harm and war and um and poverty, you know, the 60s, the the mid-60s. Um, it starts with the assassination of John F. Kennedy. That 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 came from a a deep vilification that led to you know uh, uh, an assassination a homicide of of our president. So yeah, I don't know that it, it, it. Yeah, I'm always I struggle, and we've talked about this before. Like I look at the world today and and um, and wonder has it ever been this polarized? Have 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 we ever been this broken around? problem solving and um and i'm and reading not, the ben franklin really biography and the, holy you know wait, wait what say that again what i'm reading the ben franklin biography and okay. if you want to talk about a time that was broken and challenging and and globally yeah. dangerous and scary uh you know the the late 1700s was an interesting time for that yeah i know i got it i it's a constant reminder um, that, uh, that these are, these themes that we see today are, are, you know, in some ways they may be getting better. As you just mentioned, like your answer before, uh, was really well stated around, um, you know, very culturally aware to describe the impression that you as a kid as a relative, uh, from a relative position of advantage. Um, and that's a really sophisticated way to think about things. And I think we're more and more, because of podcasts, like as seen on, on mm -hmm. radio, mm -hmm. because of, 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 of people and scholars coming out and talking about um, these, these issues and that we all don't see America through the same light because of the, because of where we are and our station and, it, 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 those types of dialogues are certainly elevated. And I myself feel like I'm going through an education right now, which is. Yeah. But the great thing is that we're in this time where many, many of the institutions we relied on to, you know, bring us together are fraying. I, I understand that. Um, but at the same time in that fray, there are new voices and there are new opportunities for messaging um, that just didn't exist before. You know, we saw the movie um, Judas and the Black Messiah. Yeah, I saw it. And, um, you know, uh, 
Charles King, the tremendous producer uh, of that movie from Macro, um, Emerson Collective is a partner with them. You know, he's he's someone who's had an opportunity to actually start a business that is entirely focused on bringing messages that would never have made it through the uh, the whatever the editorial or control or business boards of of production studios before. So, um, so it raises the question though, because when when Mitch was on, he said, and and I'm used to hearing this now. He's like, it's our democracy's. Ne- I'm going to paraphrase, but it's never been more important. To, uh, to think about our democracy and do smart things. And why has it never been more important? Like something's going on right now, or maybe they said that in 1978, you know, maybe I, whoever I, was the professor back then. I think that, I think that you've hit on it. I think it's, it's always been never more important. Right, right. Right. And I think that that's actually what makes it democracy, right? The fact that you can't switch it off, the yeah. fact that you can't, you know, you can't just turn it over to some sovereign to take care of it for you. The fact that you don't, you know, um, abrogate your own personal responsibility and mm-hmm. hand it over to a strong person. Yes. Um, that's what it's all about. For um, reasons which I sometimes question myself, my son and I are big Washington football team fans. And I have this ongoing joke with them where every play I'm like, biggest play of the season right here. And um, and I'm actually right because each right. successive play is kind of like this is it. This is the biggest play of the season, exactly. and I guess that's kind of what we're going through with America. Like these are these are the biggest moments. This is the biggest election of our lifetime. This is you know we've never seen a threat to democracy like this before because because as we move forward, it just feels like the stakes get higher and higher. Yeah, and I I don't want to diminish any of the particularly serious watershed moments, but, um, you know, the stakes do get higher and higher because as a country, we get bigger and bigger. Our, our world in a way gets smaller and smaller. The threats, you know, compound, um, the complexity, uh, creates, you know, increased interdependencies and, and, and outcomes you can't predict, but at the same time, in theory, we're gaining experience. We're getting smarter. We're finding, you know, we're finding new discoveries. We're building better technology. So in, in many ways, that's the whole story of human evolution. The question is, can we, can we keep up uh, socially, culturally, um, politically with our innovation so that we don't outrun ourselves? Where else but Gov actually do you get <laughs> opinions on democracy and one Danny, they're already listening you don't have to sell them on, on listening and, uh, and then um, in one episode uh, deep thoughts about the, the state of democracy and in the next episode a deep dive on the federal acquisition regulation right coming right. up well, next it's, Gov, the, actually. it's the same thing I, that's my argument it's all the same thing coming up next cost plus contracts exactly. where are they going from here Exactly. Well, cost plus contract. Don't get me started on cost plus, but but um. <laughs> but anyway, I I uh, I appreciate um, I appreciate um, Mitch joining us today. Um, definitely, um, mine feels a little bigger. Um, I, I'm more optimistic actually. The fact that this conversation is happening in you know not just in his classroom, but he's sharing it more broadly. We get to amplify it to our 
our dozens of listeners uh, on Gov. Actually, I, I, I know you hate that. That's why I do it. Um, and, uh, and then- uh, uh, But I guess if, you, if you, someone has to play the self-deprecating role and that someone on the team has to play the like the higher self-importance. So I'll play like the, we're big deal, Gov, actually. And you can, exactly. you can play- I've, I've yeah. turned you into bad cop. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, no. Uh, uh, conceited cop, your humble cop. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Um, but anyway, uh, I, I think we um, we we can't end this episode without commenting on the biggest news of the week, which was the the verdict on um, the George, George Floyd homicide. Um, we we dealt with that uh, issue as best we could when when it first happened. Um, I, I think combining it with with some of the you know optimistic stratagems provided by Mitch Weiss today and some of this dialogue that we've been having I'm feeling um, and, and maybe it's because my vaccine is officially kicked in today I'm after two weeks of my j and j um, I'm feeling like there's like green shoots of possibility and and optimism for dramatically altering the path in a in a positive way of our of our big experiment as we describe the American democratic system. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned the movie um, Judas and the Black Messiah, mm-hmm. and um, I also watched uh, the trial of the Chicago Seven. The movie. Oh, that's an incredible movie. And you know, just all of the the uh, the injustice, and you know, just the you want to you want to bang your head into a wall, pull your hair out, just watching, like, how could this happen uh, in, in our country? And then, and then you see a, 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 the, a court and a, and, a, and a jury process play out in a way where, uh, where justice is, is reached and it's served. And, and my reflection was, you know, unfortunately, justice isn't served all the time, but that day it was. And, mm. um, and and so we should pause and reflect that uh, that we took we took a few steps forward. Uh, we take steps back. We take steps forward. And I agree. It's uh, it's it's we're we're on a journey. And, and when things like that happen, you kind of get the sense like we're on a good journey. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a rough journey, but it's a good journey. So um, so thank you for raising that before we uh, before we set off for the day. Um, Dan, always a pleasure. Pleasure is entirely mine. Thank you so much for uh, for this partnership and and the opportunity to do this with you and and to talk to great people like Mitch. I'm I'm excited for the next person we get to talk to. Absolutely. All right. Thank you, sir. Take care.